Today's reading is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 to 17. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in the house of Cedar, while the ark of God remains in the tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the law is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut out all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they, ha they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The law declares to you that the law himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he goes thus wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rebecca, for praying and Ivy for reading. And if I can keep you, uh, if I can encourage you to get the Bibles out and keep the Bibles out to Second Samuel um, chapter 7. Let's pray that God will speak to us. Lord, we thank you uh, for the revelation of your story and that it's a story of your commitment and love towards sinners like us. And Lord, we pray once again that we'll be able to see your grace and your goodness through these words, that we might live our lives in response to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Imagine if you're writing the story of your life. You could ask, who would be the main character of that story? 
course, you might say, well, it's a story of my life. It's my story. <laughs> I should be the main character. And that's fair enough. Of course, the culture around us encourages this sort of thinking. The boomers were the original, called the original me generation. And in 2014, Time magazine did a cover story called, and called Millennials Me, Me, Me Generation. I've read an author calling Gen Z, the latest generation, the generation born 2000 and on, calling them me, 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 me generation. Uh, solid rockers are here in the service today. I wonder if you think of yourselves in this way. But the Bible has always known that this wasn't a generational problem. In fact, it goes all the way back to the beginning of our story in Genesis chapter 3. The problem with Genesis chapter 3 it goes back to Garden of Eden there. And, and the problem there was that we didn't want to submit to a higher authority. We didn't want to live in a world where God defined what is right and wrong, and we didn't want to submit to it. We wanted to invent our own story. We wanted to defa- uh, define what is right and wrong for ourselves from the very beginning. This problem of autonomy, the pursuing of uh, my story, that goes back all the way to the beginning of humanity. We've always been me-centered. But friends, what the creation tells us also is that we live in God's world, (laughs) that God is the one who created us. God is the one who created the world, and God is with us. And although we've ruined it because we are His, He continues his story of saving us, bringing us to himself. And so we come to the week five of this series of the Bible's big story, God's story, our story, and to the promise uh, made to David. We'll focus on three points. We're made, uh, we're, we're to make God's story our story. We're to look at all the authorities in the world then as vice regents or uh, stewards. Uh, rather than kings, and we are to remember that there is a perfect king, that all these authorities point to Jesus Christ whom we are to serve. So let's do a quick recap from last week. God fulfilled the promise made to Abraham through Exodus. God brought his people out from Egypt and made them into a great nation. I gave them his law so that they could enjoy God's blessings. But the high point, that high point is followed by 40 years of wandering in the desert because of sin. But then God raises Joshua, and he brings that generation, the next generation, into the promised land. And that, too, then, is followed by the book of Judges, the spiral downward, moral spiral downward. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, the story that goes from worst to worst, and the book ends with this line, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. Everyone did as he saw fit. God's people needed God's ruler, a king, who could help people to live God's way. And so God uh, appoints Saul and then David, and David is a great success. David unites all the tribes and makes them into one nation. He defeats the enemies. He, in leading to our reading, chapter 5, he captures Jerusalem. He, he captures Jerusalem in chapter 5. And then he, in chapter 6, he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. 
And as we can see in chapter 7, verse 1, Israel enjoys an unprecedented time of peace. God's people are in God's land. The Jerusalem, the city of God is there. And now there's unprecedented peace, but something he feels is lacking. He says to himself, well, I live in this house of cedar, this great palace, while God's ark, God's, uh, God lives in this tent, um, in the tabernacle, verse 2. He wants to build God uh, a permanent house, a temple. All oh, the pagan nations around the world have great temples. Why not Yahweh God? He wants to be the one who builds God this temple. It seems like a no-brainer. Prophet Nathan says, of course, go ahead and do it. He doesn't even think about it. Seems like a no-brainer. But if you pay attention to God's word to David, God rebukes David. It is a form of rebuke, isn't it? But why? Why does God stop David from building the temple himself? It's subtle, but listen to the content of what God tells David. First, God tells David from verses 5 and to 7 that he has never lived in a house. He doesn't need a house. I mean, God doesn't need a house. He doesn't live in a house. Uh, In fact, the reason why God uh, instructed the building of the tabernacle is so that, that God's people would have a visual reminder that God is in their midst, that God is they're God's people and God is traveling with them, that God is with them. That's what the tabernacle was all about. It was there for them, not for God. So partly God's saying, you know, I don't need this. You know that, right? Instead, God reminds David in verses 8 to 9, of all the things that God has done for him. First, God says, you're a shepherd, pastoring flocks um, out there, but I called you and made you my prince, my ruler, he says. I appointed you to watch over my people. You didn't win these victories. I've been with you from the very beginning, and I have cut off your enemies. God says, your success is my success. You are there where you are because of I, because of what I have done. Here's the thing about this. Often when we are most successful, uh, when our career is going well, when we're most able to do things, uh, we're enjoying God's blessing, sometimes we're in danger then of uh, claiming equality with God which is back once again to Genesis chapter 3. That's the original sin that we saw there. You see, David thinks now himself as the king. In verse 1, he's called the king. He is now the king, and now he wants to do something for God who needs his help, who needs something from him. Momentarily, he's forgotten that God Yahweh himself is the king over his people, and he is his prince, his vice-regent, a ruler on God's behalf. Momentarily, he's forgotten that he is God's servant. It's not a bad thing, of course, that we want to do great things for God. Apologist uh, Sean McDowell says, of this generation, Gen Z, 
uh, they, they want to do great things. They don't want to just live. They want to make a difference. 60%, uh, uh, over 60% of the, the latest generation says they want to make a difference in this world. What a great thing. And many of, of, of young people already uh, um, uh, give their time in volunteering and whatnot to make a difference in the world. They want their jobs to not just to make money, but they want to make an impact in this world. What a wonderful thing. But if there are Gen Zers here, I mean, there are many here, could I ask you to think about this? Could I challenge you not to dream on your own, on your own terms? Instead of saying, God, I want to build you a house. God, I want to make a difference in this world. God, come and help me. You are at the center of that world, aren't you, if you're asking God that prayer? Instead, ask God, God, what are you doing in this world? How are you saving people? How, what are you doing in this world that I can be a part of because I am your servant? I want to live for you do your work because although this generation, latest generation, is a special generation in many, many uh, ways, but you guys will not save the world. The world already has a Savior. His name is Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. He is doing the work in this world. Actually, Gen Zs, they're not the first generation to think like this. I remember the song released in 1985. You, we Are the World, remember this <laughs> the song, um, written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie, bring, brought in all sorts of celebrities to sing this arousing song. Listen to the words, we are the world, we are the children, we're the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start giving. There's a choice we're making, we're saving our own lives. It's true that we'll make a better day, just you and me. Did you hear that? We're saving our own lives, just you and me. I asked Barney, Barney, what's wrong with that line? And Barney Im- immediately knew. <laughs> he said, well, we're not. Jesus, Jesus is our Savior, not ourselves, not ourselves. It's true that God involves us. It's true that God involves us, but that's not because he needs us, but that's because he is loving. He has created us to be in relationship with him. He has created us to rule on his behalf, and he wants us to be involved in his work. He uses us, but not because he needs us. God is the king of this world, and we ought to be serving him. We ought to be asking what God wants us to be doing in this world. And you might ask, well, how do we know then what God wants us to do in this world? How can we find out? Well, look to the Bible. Look to God's revealed word. So many of us uh, spend so much of our time on Instagram and YouTube and Facebook. Uh, we get all our information through uh, all these things. I mean, even newspapers, research papers, the best of the books in the world. Don't just get your, source, uh, get your information from there. Friends, look to God's Word, the Bible. And this series, God's Story, Our Story, is the story of what God is doing how God has created the world and how God is committed to saving us and what God is doing, what we can be part of. Look to what God has revealed and seek to be part of that story. Make God's story, our story, your story. This means if God is the ruler, the king over the world, that means all authority, 
all authority are not ultimate kings, that they're vice regents, they're stewards on God's behalf, not kings who are equal to God. And this is what David uh, is reminded here. Unlike other kings of that culture, of that time, Israel was unique in that, that their power, the, 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 the power of their kings, were not absolute. Israel had laws, but remember, they were not written by the kings themselves. They were written by God, given through Moses to the kings. And when a king is enthroned, this is the first thing that they're supposed to do. Deuteronomy chapter 17, 8 to 20. He is to write longhand, by hand, the, the law that God has given them. Them themselves, they are to write it out. They have to write it out, and that copy is to be with them so that he can revere it, follow it, follow him, uh, follow it, and here. And, and so that, in verse 20, does not, he himself does not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. You see, the kings are not supposed to rule with absolute authority. They're supposed to be fellow servants of the king, God. You see, kings were God's servants. And God rejects Saul, king of Israel, because he didn't understand this. Confronting Saul, prophet Samuel uh, says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him, David, the ruler of his people, because you, Saul, have not kept the Lord's command. Saul selectively obeyed God's command. He made excuses when he's confronted by God's prophets. He put his status, his authority, over God's kingdom, his kingdom, and his will, God's will. So although we see David here momentarily, maybe forgetting his place in this chapter, but for the most part, he is a man who seeks after God's own heart. He's trying to live his life, not his own way, but God's way. You know, in verse one of our chapter here, David is referred as king. King was settled in his palace. But God calls him, in verse 8, a prince, a ruler. He's my prince. You're my prince, my ruler. And we don't have time to read God's, uh, David's response, but in chapter 17, verses 18 on and on, you see David's response. Not once does he call himself a king. Not, he doesn't even call himself a prince. He calls himself God's servant. And when he prays back to God, he is humbled. He knows who he is. He is God's servant, the Lord's servant. And we saw that throughout his life. Why didn't he kill Saul when he had the chance? Well, because he says, well, Saul is the Lord's anointed. Because he feared the Lord. He wanted to live his life the Lord's way, not his. He brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Why? Because people are calling that city the city of David. He wanted to make sure that it wasn't the city of David. It was Zion. Zion, city of God, where God dwells. Why does he uh, uh, consult Nathan? Well, Nathan is the God's prophet. He wants to live under the Lord's authority. And when confronted by Nathan for his adultery and uh, murder, he repents. He repents knowing that he's gone against the true king, God. He lives under God's authority. He knew himself as a vice regent, the servant of God. Friends, we all... All of us need to look all authorities in that way, which I think is very important to remember in, in light of the current situation. 
current, current events, maybe you're asking, I don't know if you have had people asking, should Christians support Israel in this war against Hamas? And there might be political reasons why you might support Israel and, um, and whatnot, but on theological grounds, I want to say this is shaky. It's a complicated issue, um, so I won't go into it. But remember, no earthly authority should demand absolute loyalty. No earthly authority should demand unconditional support. And as we saw last week, Israel's chosenness looks forward to the chosen one. Uh, it looks forward to Jesus himself and those who are in Jesus, in him, the church everywhere are the now the chosen kingdom, the treasured possession, holy priesthood. And no Christian leader should claim absolute authority or we shouldn't give that sort of absolute authority to any Christian leader either even if they're named John Stott or Tim Keller or whoever you admire. And most importantly, we ought to exercise our power, whatever power that you have as vice regents, as stewards of God's kingship. In a recent church event, uh, in this interview, I asked uh, the person what, uh, what the person enjoys about his job. His answer was surprising. He said, power. Power, power to effect change, power to make a difference. I thought it was a great answer. But power also is dangerous, isn't it? This is why evangelicals also stay away from talking about power in this way. Power is dangerous. We've all known bosses, managers, parents, even friends who misuse their power to make our lives miserable. But we understand, if we understand that our power is delegated, that we have been given a measure of power, not for our sake, not to rule as we should fit, but to rule as God's stewards, God's vice regents, as, as, as God would exercise it, then we, went, we can contribute to making our home, our workplace, our neighbors, our company, our country a place where we can flourish, where God's people can flourish, where people can flourish. Church, what would that mean for you to exercise your power as vice regents? And, and you, even as friends, and solid rockers are here, even as friends, you have measure of influence and the power. How can, that, how can you use that for God's glory and not for selfish gains? But for a brief moment, David thought of himself as indispensable. After all, he's the king. He thought, he forgot that he, everything he was, was because of God. So God reminded him. God's, it was God's grace that brought Israelites out of Egypt. Grace that brought them into the promised land. Grace that brought him to be the king. And grace that will continue to build God's kingdom. And here, in this important chapter where God renews the promise made to Abraham, to David, here, God offers again grace beyond what he deserves. David offered to build God a house. God said, no, I will build you a house. Not a house made of wood and ivory or whatever, but a dynasty. Take a look at the promise um, in verse 13 and on. 
Your throne will endure forever. Israel was a small country surrounded by big powers. Your throne will endure forever. He will be, uh, God will be his father and the king his son. I think this means, this is a way of saying that these kings will reflect God's character and God's rule, just as sons reflect their father. And when they do wrong, verse 15, God won't remove himself from the relationship. They'll be rebuked, but they won't be rejected. They'll be disciplined, uh, but not abandoned. And the dynasty, he says, will continue forever, verse 15. Now, God's promise here isn't for David alone. It was for God's people. What he was saying is, in God's grace, God would never give up on his people. No matter what they did, no matter how sinful they were, God will not give up on his people. God, somebody that God has chosen, will sit on the throne and rule over God's people. And they'll never be rejected in spite of their sin, despite their sins, in spite of death and time and the history. God, will, God is committed to his people, is what he's saying. You might know, though, that Davidic line ended historically with Zedekiah. King Zedekiah, his sons were killed before his eyes. His eyes were gouged out, and then he was brought to Babylon. But this prophecy, 2 Samuel chapter 7, is central to Old Testament. It's, it's quoted again and again throughout the Old Testament, and because of it, many Jewish people still are waiting for the Messiah to come. But the New Testament starts with these words, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, and son of Abraham. Son of David, son of Abraham. Through this line, Jesus comes. God's world needs God's king who would rule uh, the world in God's way. And every human being is fallen. David sinned, uh, Solomon sinned, and so did everybody else. And everybody's sin has their consequences. I mean, read about David's sin and its consequences. Solomon's sin and its consequences in the Bible. Everybody's sin has its consequences. But Jesus, our King, obeyed God fully and ruled God's kingdom in his way. He ruled by serving people all the way to the end and by obeying God the Father all the way to the end. Remember the words in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, let this cup be taken away from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Friends, from the days of Adam and Eve, we have tried to be our own kings and queens, living life our own way. In doing so, we've ruined God's good world, and we have become slaves to idol- idols, our own desires, the fallen uh, the world. That's our story. But Jesus, who is actually equal to God himself, did not, uh, uh, did not consider equality with his Father something to be grasped. But he emptied himself and came down and obeyed his Father even to the death unto the cross. So God exalted him. He is now seated in the next hand of God the Father. And through him, we're invited to, see, to be seated next to him. And when we claim equality with God, we became enslaved. When we submit to this gracious king, God raises us up. 
and seats us next to him. That's God's story. Isn't that a great story? It's a great story. Final slide, please. It's a true story, and it's God's story, and we're invited to participate in it. So friends, stop trying to make a name for yourself, to win the blessing and, and the rest by yourself. Come and be part of his story. Live as his, his servants and not little kings and come and worship this King Jesus and he will give you rest. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have such a great king, great God, who deserve all our praise and worship. Lord, as we delve into the story of the Bible more and more, reveal to us, Lord, the depth of your love for us, depth of our sin, but depth of your love and commitment to us. And Lord, help us to know the, the fullness of that love by the power of your Spirit and help us to live our lives in the light of that grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.